Far be it from me to rejoice in anything, to glory in anything except the cross of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. These words of St. Paul you'll find in the epistle to the Galatians uh, toward the end of the epistle. Um, This was told to me by an elderly priest that I met, and he had been uh, a chaplain in the United States Army and was during the Korean War and one time stationed in a frontline hospital, the helicopter came in with a young soldier who had stepped on a landmine, and his legs were shattered, and uh, the chief surgeon came over to the priest and said, uh, those legs have to be amputated, they have to come off. Um, hard enough to do that, Father, but would you mind being the one to tell him when he recovers in the recovering room when he's finished with the anesthesia? So the priest had to undertake that duty that priests often have to undertake. And so um, he walked in, he said, into the recovery room. The young man was out of the anesthesia. And he said, son, I'm sorry to have to be the one to tell you the bad news, but uh, you've lost your legs. And the soldier looked up and said, father, I didn't lose them, I gave them. We're always moved by stories of generosity, heroism, patriotism. But uh, that story, uh, moving as it is, pales into insignificance uh, when we confront uh, what we're going to celebrate in five weeks, uh, ineffable, almighty, and eternal generosity beyond our ability to even comprehend. Uh, In the great Easter vigil, Uh, triumphant, uh, uh, great, exalted hymn, uh, we hear, uh, what ineffable generosity and love, Almighty Father, to ransom a slave, you gave away your son. And then we know that son gave off the clothes off his back, uh, his mother, precious mother from his side, He gave the blood from his veins and the breath from his lungs. Uh, He did it uh, for us. Uh, He didn't uh, lose his life, but he gave it in obedience. He was perfectly innocent, but many innocent people suffer. But no, his suffering became a sacrifice, and it was given out of absolute and complete and total generosity. So the cross and all that's comported in the cross should uh, be vivid in our lives always, but especially as Lent hurries over these weeks toward Passion Tide and then Holy Week, and then as we make our annual pilgrimage from ashes to glory, uh, the splendor, the magnificence, the triumph, and uh, the overwhelming goodness of Easter an Easter we celebrate, an Easter in which we are one day uh, going to uh, participate. It's important we keep the cross vividly in our lives. Uh, Blessed John Henry Newman, uh, in one of his uh, sermons, said that Lenten fasting and penance are extremely important because uh, for most of us, a smooth, easy life uninterrupted enjoyment of the goods of providence, full meals, good clothes, well-furnished homes, the pleasures of sense, the feeling of security, 
the consciousness of wealth. These and the like, if we are not careful, can choke up all the avenues of the soul through which the light and breath of heaven might come to us. A hard life, of course, alas, is no certain method of becoming spiritually minded, but it's one of the means by which Almighty God can make us so. We must at least, in the season of Lent, defraud ourselves of those soft elements of nature if we would want not to be defrauded uh, by grace. It was uh, a long time ago, you can still see the Milvian Bridge uh, in the northern part of Rome uh, over the Tiber River. It was uh, on October 26th in the evening uh, of the year 312 that um, two armies were grouped, one on one side of the bridge, one side on the other, with the Tiber River between them. That area is called, even to this day, I don't know why, but it's called the Saxa Rubra, a red rock. And it was at that place that two mighty armies filled with Roman legionaries confronted each other. On the one side was Constantine, and the other side was Maxentius. Both had pretensions to be the new emperor of Rome. And it was that evening, the 26th of October, 312, that Constantine had a dream. And it was the very famous dream. He saw in the sky a cross illuminated. And he heard a voice, a powerful voice, saying, Hoc signo vinces, in this sign you will conquer. So he woke up and roused his sleeping army and forced them all to put a cross on their shields. The next day, the 27th of October, a great battle took place at the Milvian Bridge, and his forces overwhelmed those of Maxentius. He became the emperor. Uh, that uh, cross, that sign, and those words, and hoc signo vinces, uh, were a characteristic of his imperial reign. If you go to Rome today also, uh, besides going up to see the Milvian Bridge, although it's been replaced and refixed over innumerable times over many, many centuries. Uh, you can also, in the old Roman Forum, the ruins, see the triumphant arch of Constantine commemorating his victory at uh, the Milvian Bridge. And uh, you can see very clearly the cross and underneath the carved words, in hoc signo vinces, in this sign uh, you will conquer. Uh, Constantine's mother, as you know, is Catholic, Christian, St. Helen, and that may have influenced his thought, may have influenced his dream, may have influenced or inspired him even. But at any rate, uh, the cross uh, became important, uh, a great and glorious symbol of the triumph of Christianity. It was the next year, 313, that Constantine issued the Edict of Milan, and finally allowed, after 300 years, the church to emerge from the catacombs and uh, to be public. And, of course, he was the one who erected uh, almost immediately over the tomb of St. Peter and St. Paul in Rome, uh, the two great basilicas that lasted there uh, for many centuries. Uh, God uh, always seems to have a sense of paradox, a sense of irony, maybe a little uh, sarcasm 
when it comes to our salvation. The whole disaster occurred initially because there was a tree and there was a man and a woman and a garden. And, of course, to undo it, there was a new Adam, a new man. There was another woman there, his mother, and there was a tree called the cross. So the cross is extremely important. Thomas Akempis said, Jesus has many lovers of his heavenly kingdom, but few who are willing to bear his cross. He has many who desires his comfort, but few to share his tribulation. He finds companions for his table, but few for his abstinence. All want to rejoice with him, but few are willing to suffer with him. Many follow Jesus in the breaking of the bread, but few there are who are willing to drink the chalice of his passion. May we, in Passion Tide, be numbered among those who are willing to do so. Uh, One of the things that uh, we should keep in mind then, especially as Lent goes on toward Passion Tide, the importance of the cross. St. Therese of Lisieux said, Look at Jesus on the cross. See his adorable face, his glazed and sunken eyes, his wounds, and there you see how he loves us. Calvary is not just a historical accident, something that might not have happened had Pilate been a braver man or Judas been a trustier man or Caiaphas a holier man. Uh, Jesus comes to pay uh, the wages of sin, which men have so laboriously uh, earned. We... um, sometimes uh, don't know the evolution of language that takes place. About 200 years before the time of Christ, the Hebrew language um, had an evolution. Uh, Sin, originally in Hebrew, meant violation of God's law, a law break, uh, a crime in that sense. But addition to that, about 200 years before the time of Christ, it took on another meaning as well, a debt. Uh, Because God, in the reflection of the rabbis, uh, was unchangeable, immutable. He couldn't be offended uh, in a real sense. And so the offense was really a debt that we incurred. And so that's why uh, the double meaning is there in sin. And to be free of sin, we have to be bought back. The debt has to be paid. And so we have uh, the word for our Lord, the Redeemer, the buyer back. And in a certain sense, uh, this is um, characteristic of the double meaning of that Hebrew word for sin. Uh, We know that uh, violation of the law, a trespass, is what... uh, Uh, We say, St. Matthew and St. Mark tell us, God, Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer. But it's interesting, Luke used the word debt. Forgive us our debt as we forgive our debtors. And so we have to, uh, that double meaning uh, puts a meaning on the cross. Because St. Paul said, uh, we had this this debt we owed to God. So uh, Jesus took that debt and destroyed it by kneeling it uh, to his cross. The cross is uh, very much uh, the measure of the world. Uh, The great John Henry Newman, whom I esteem so greatly, the blessed uh, cardinal from England, the great convert who 
unsurpassed in his uh, mastery of English prose, uh, said that we should uh, use the cross always as the measure of our world. He said, look around and see what the world presents of high and low, and go to the court of princes. See the treasure and skill of all the nations brought together to honor a child of man. Observe the prostration of many before the few. Consider the form and ceremonial, the pomp, the state, the circumstance, the vain glory, the politics. Do you wish to know the worth of it all? Look at the cross of Christ. Go to the political world. Nation jealous of nations, trade rivaling trade, armies, fleets matched against each other. Survey the various ranks of the community, the political parties, their contests, the strivings, the ambitions, the intrigues of the crafty. What's the end of all this turmoil? What is its measure? Look at the cross. Go again to the world of intellect and science. Consider the wonderful discoveries which the human mind is making, the variety of arts to which its discoveries give rise, the all but miracles by which it shows its power, its technology, and the pride and confidence of reason, the absorbing devotion of thought, transitory objects. What's the consequence of it all? Would you form a right judgment? Look at the cross. Again, look at misery, at poverty, at destitution. Look at oppression, captivity. Go to places where food is scanty, lodging unhealthy. Consider pain and suffering, diseases long or violent, all that is frightful and revolting. Do you know how to rate all, rate all these? Gaze upon the cross. Thus in the cross and him who hung upon it, all things meet, all things subserve it, all things need it. It's their center and their interpretation. For he was lifted up upon it that he might draw all men unto it, and unto himself. And so the cross seems to be a sign that might be sad, but it's not. It's only temporarily sad. Yeah, the real sadness comes from not understanding that cross, from not putting that cross deeply and profoundly into our lives. And so, too, as regards the world and all its enjoyments and disappointments, don't trust this world. Don't give your hearts to it. Let us not begin with it, but rather begin with faith, begin with Christ. Let, the, let us begin with his cross and his humiliation. Let us first be drawn to him who is lifted up, so that he may with himself freely give us all things. He said, the kingdom of God and its righteousness, this is first. So Newman concludes, they alone are truly able to enjoy this world who begin with the world unseen. They alone enjoy it who have first abstained from it. They alone can truly feast who first have fasted. They alone are able to use this world who have learned not to abuse it. They alone inherit it who take it as a shadow of the world to come and who, for the sake of that world, are ready to relinquish this one. I think uh, we should always uh, then, especially in Lent, think of the glory and the splendor of the cross. 
looking at the cross can teach us two things. First, the overwhelming love of God, and second, of course, the horror and the terror of sin. That's because he decided to show us in this dramatic way, in that cross, uh, what uh, he has come to do for us, not to condemn the world, uh, but to save the world. We uh, think in this time of the year, especially a little astronomically, because as you know, (laughs) Easter, when we would celebrate Easter was at the early days of the church, a matter of controversy. The, um, a lot of the church wanted to celebrate it according to the lunar calendar because of the Jewish Passover and all that connected with that. Others, no, Christ was raised from the dead. Christ rose from the dead on Sunday. Therefore, we have to use the solar calendar. And so, this, uh, so there was a compromise in the Council of Nicaea. So Easter was decided to be the first Sunday after the first full moon after the vernal equinox. And, of course, that uh, shifts it back and forth, up and down. might be interesting as just an aside. Uh, one of the discussions in the Second Vatican Council was about a fixed date for Easter, a fixed Sunday. And uh, the Council Fathers said, we, we will agree to that, provided that we can get the Eastern Orthodox to agree with it too, which, of course, was hopeless and uh, beyond. Uh, the, uh, the calendar, as you know, once again as an aside, was... Uh, discombobulated quite a bit. It was the, the calendar, the Western calendar, was really by, fixed up by a genius, Julius Caesar. He did the calendar quite nicely. Uh, he uh, inserted, as you know, two months into it, one named after him, July, Julius, and one named after his uh, presumed successor. It was his successor, Octavian Augustus, so he had July and August. That's why the months, the months are off. Septem is the uh, Latin word for seven, but uh, September is the ninth month, and so it goes eight, nine, and ten, and so they, they're off. But uh, it was okay, and, and he put in the leap year. Uh, he was indeed a genius, but he, uh, uh, he didn't do everything he should have done, and as a result, the calendar was slipping back and back and back, and that's why even till this day, the Vatican has an uh, astronomical observatory, one of the best in the world, but anyway, the uh, Pope Julius, uh, Pope Gregory the Thirteenth, decided the calendar had to be adjusted, and so uh, in 1587 he adjusted it, and so he suppressed uh, ten days. So you went to sleep on October 4th and woke up on October 15th. Of course, the Catholic countries accepted that, but by 1587. Protestantism was abroad, and so they didn't accept it for many years. It was only in the 200 years later that, under King George III, England accepted it. And then by that time, it was two weeks out, and so there were riots and commotion over salaries and rents and all that sort of thing. And the, uh, uh, the, the, in Russia, it had never been accepted. Even to this day, the Orthodox don't accept it, but... Uh, the communist government in 1917 accepted the Gregorian calendar. But at any rate, the Gregorian calendar was uh, uh, what... Uh, and he kept Easter, this uh, flexible uh, first Sunday after the first full moon, after the vernal equinox. After the schism uh, with the Eastern Orthodox, they added another after. The first Sunday after the first full moon, after the vernal equinox, after the Jewish Passover. So that 
added. That's why very rarely do we coincide with the Eastern Orthodox Easter. Uh, at any rate, uh, the, uh, the calendar discussion went on and on in the Second Vatican Council. They said, once again, they would agree to a fixed date. The other big issue with the calendar in the Second Vatican Council uh, was having a permanent uh, calendar uh, for the year. So, uh, in other words, fixing the calendar so that um, February 24th would always be on a Saturday. And that could be done. It could be done if you take one day out of the calendar and not give it a number or a name, and you could fix the calendar so that every day would be that number. but uh, And the, the council fathers said they could agree to that so long as uh, it would be a seven-day week and always have a Sunday. Um, they were wary because of the uh, French Revolution when the Freemasons and the Jacobins and those anti-Christians wanted to get rid of Sunday. So they put in a 10-day week in their calendar and eliminated Sunday as well as all Christian observances. But whatever, whatever. Uh, just an aside, uh, why we think, however, in these days about um, uh, the uh, glories and splendor that's coming, the glory that comes after the ashes. The love of Christ, the love of God, uh, astronomically, is um, overwhelming. Sometimes we don't think of it really, but Our planet Earth is really, in astronomical terms, a tiny speck of astronomical dust that's circulating around this dying star called the Sun out on the edge of this secondary galaxy called the Milky Way that's in 7 billion years going to crash into this other galaxy called Andromeda. Uh, We don't have to worry too much about that. It's only 7 billion years away. But the, the, uh, the, the story of how... Uh, this tiny speck of astronomical dust should be of such great interest uh, to the one who created this and whom this universe could not contain, who may have created other universes we don't even know about, uh, the 700 billion light years across. Uh, but he, he loves us, and um, we think of what that means. He counts the hair on our head, and uh, he loves us so much. And how can this be? Uh, The love of God uh, there. The other horror, really, that uh, the crucifixion, the cross, tells us is what sin is. Interesting, after the Second World War, a group of GIs went to San Stefano Rotundo down to visit Padre Pio, now Saint Pio of Petrocina. But uh, they said, what's the greatest sin? What's the greatest sin in our world today? And Padre Pio said, I will repeat what Pius XII said. The greatest sin is the denial of sin. It's true. Today, we uh, use euphemisms uh, to cover sin. Uh, Evil is uh, uh, just a a sickness, or we can always have some excuse, uh, but that's not true. Uh, Sin is a reality, and uh, there's no better way to comprehend, perhaps, something of that reality when we think of the divine carpenter who was nailed to a cross uh, to save us. Uh, He came not to condemn the world, but to save the world, and he did it uh, by his obedience. Uh, He said, I can take up my life and I can lay it down, but uh, I have come to do your will. And he told us that God's will is uh, his desire, 
and coincides with his human will, not my will, but thy will be done. Then he gave us also not just uh, the splendor of the possibility of being saved, of having uh, an eternity that uh, goes beyond our ability to imagine. Eye has not seen, or ear has heard those things that uh, God has prepared for those who love him. And so we, too, uh, have then this ability to respond with love. Not sentiment, emotion, ardor, passion, desire. We're human beings with bodies as well as souls, and when we love, those things are often involved. Sometimes they can be a disguise for selfishness, but they're part of what loving is. But that's not really what it is. The greatest uh, amount of love is the most sublime kind of love. As you know, there are three Greek words for love. The first is eros, the second is philea, and the third is agape. And uh, there's something of that in all of us. Eros is selfish love for our own pleasure and comfort. Uh, Philea is a little bit disinterested. Philanthropy, we help love others uh, for the sake of loving them, maybe for the good feelings it gives us. But the most sublime kind of love is called agape. It means unselfish. I don't care about myself. I'm so interested. I want to make the one who I love happy at whatever cost to me. And that's why, for many years, what we call the Mass, the Divine Liturgy, uh, was called agape. It was a love feast. And in that sense, love, prescinding from passion, ardor, sentiment, desire, these things that are part of our human constituency, uh, can give us a good indication of what love means. And if we are men of love, if we are people of love, We are willing uh, not only to gaze upon the cross, to learn from it, but to insert it in some extent into our lives, and especially to share to some extent uh, those sufferings of Christ that we can turn from suffering into sacrifice. Uh, We can be, um, uh, as St. Paul tells us in the Epistle to the Colossians, I fill up in my body what is lacking and the sufferings of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. Christ's sufferings are perfect. They redeemed us. They're the sufferings of the God-man. But what's missing? What's missing? It's the distribution. We can bring what Christ won on the cross to our fellow human beings uh, by participating uh, with our words, with our prayers, of course, but also by participating insofar as our human condition allows us and insofar as it uh, causes us uh, to share in those kinds of sufferings. One of my favorites, of course, that I like to talk about a little bit is Joyce Kilmer. Joyce Kilmer was from New Jersey, and he was uh, a convert to the Catholic faith, and once converted, became incredibly enthusiastic about uh, being a Catholic. And... uh, never kept his promise as a great poet because he kept a better promise. He enlisted in the First World War and died fighting for our country in France. But uh, he did, uh, before his uh, death on the battlefield, write his famous prayer of a soldier in France that we can perhaps put into our lives um, uh, during this passion tide during this season of Lent. He said, my shoulders ache beneath my pack 
lie easier cross upon his back. I march with feet that burn and smart, tread holy feet upon my heart. Men shout at me who may not speak. They scourge thy back and smote thy cheek. I may not lift my hand to clear my eyes of salty drops that sear. Then shall my fickle soul forget thine agony of bloody sweat. My rifle hand is stiff and numb. From thy pierced palm red rivers run. Lord, thou didst suffer more for me than all the hosts of land and sea. So let me pay thee back again this millionth of thy gift. Amen. We, uh, perhaps this time of the year more than any other, should put into our mottos of life the words of St. Paul uh, to the Galatians. Uh, God forbid that I should glory in anything except the cross of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.